Verizon says it's 10.30. Verizon says it's 10.30. Um, let's get into the text. I want to do some things otherwise to wrap up after the text. Uh, we're in chapter 12. Chapter 12 goes over into chapter 13. And I would like to talk about um, into chapter 13 up to uh, Lewis's paraphrase of Psalm 91. So, in chapter 12, you notice at the end of chapter 11, uh, he, he thinks he sees a river. But he realizes real quickly the river is what? Procession coming. But he's seeing the reflection of the light on the bottom of trees, and that's why in his mind he thinks it's a river running beneath the trees, but it's a, it's a light-filled um, procession. And they're bringing some, it's a big deal, and they're bringing some famous lady on the procession. And on page 118, you notice um, he, Lewis, whispers to his guide, George MacDonald, is it, is it, we've, we've always had to assume who he's thinking they may be bringing this wonderful heavenly procession, bringing a female in great glory. So who do you think he thinks it's going to be? Mary. Mary. Um, he thinks it's going to be Mary. Well, it's, it's not Mary. What's her name? Sarah, Sarah Smith. Uh, about as ordinary a name as you can get. <laughs> Sarah Smith from a place called Golders Green. You know anything about Golders Green? Um, Sarah Smith, obviously, is a average name. Golders Green is a, a section of London, a very, very normal, average, maybe below average section of London historically. It was where the first crematorium was placed when... Um, when Christians finally started doing that. And um, I don't know if it, you know, picked that region to put the crematorium, but it probably did not become desirable real estate as soon as they put the crematorium there in Golders Green. So she is a very ordinary lady coming from maybe a less than ordinary place, Golders Green. And, um, of course, that tweaks Lewis's interest. You know, who is she? She must be somebody really, really famous to have this great, angelic, heavenly procession. Um, and um, she is famous in the heavenly sense. She's not famous in an earthly sense. Page 119. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No. Uh, there are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. Um, what, what's, he, what's he saying about her at that point? What, what, does he, what does that mean? Yeah, she just connected, related, loved people. She made all the people that came in her orbit better people. She made all the people that came in her orbit, her sons and daughters. Remember in the New Testament, Paul calls people like Timothy. Um, or Paul calls people like Onesimus and Philemon his son in the faith. So she was a woman who just by nature, and we should all be doing this, just by nature mentored the people around her. Everybody that comes in your orbit today should be a better person because they've come in your orbit. They should be better at loving. Um, and that's, that's, what, that's what Sarah Smith did. Everybody that came in came into her orbit under her influence, uh, became better people because of that. Um, and even the animals. And, and, and notice if you keep reading, and how, but hello, wh where, where, what are all these animals? 
a cat, two cats, dozens of cats, and all these dogs. Why? I can't count them. And the birds and the horses, they are her beast. Did she keep a sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. So she even was a great blessing to the animals uh, that she encountered. Um, And again, notice these animals, just like the humans, in her they became themselves. I'm really concerned about a culture where people are propelled to seek and become their authentic self. What we... What we, from a Christian perspective, desire is we become ourselves not by figuring out what we want and who we are and all that stuff. We become ourselves by becoming more Christ-like, by giving more of our life to Christ. Um, That's why we become more human. We become more that we were created to be. Heaven is the place where that's completed. Um, We don't become more human as we become more authentic. Because we might be authentically a jerk by our nature, and that doesn't mean we should be authentic. Um, So you need to be careful and define these terms that our culture likes to use. If you want to be be more human, if you want to be a different kind of human, if you want to be the best you can be, you need to define the word best. And as Christians, we cannot define that word best apart from the will of God. And God's desire for us is to become more like Christ. So um, all creation is meant to be redeemed. So these animals, even when they were around Sarah Smith, became a little more like the animals in the Garden of Eden. They became a little more the animals they were created to be. Um, you, you, All of us have influence with people. Everybody that meets us today, this is another Lewis paraphrase, everybody that meets us today, we're either helping them on their way to heaven or helping them on their way to hell. We're helping them become more heavenly or more hellish. So again, we are mentoring people. So you, We'd be surprised at who's watching us. You are mentoring people. See, we need to be aware of that and make sure that we're mentoring them leading them, influencing them, modeling before them. You know, again, I'm really worried at our culture when I think about the, the role models that our young people have. You need, you need a Sarah Smith as your role model. But she would never be chosen as a role model in this world because she's not famous, except she is in heaven. But she's not famous on this earth. So nobody would choose her as a role model, and she's really being a role model. So anyway, so you're introduced to Sarah. You're introduced to Sarah. Now, um, and Sarah, notice, she's being brought down from the the mountains. She's being brought down from the high heavens. She's being brought down from heaven proper, coming down to the lowlands because she she wants to meet somebody because she's still loving. She wants to meet somebody. Who does she meet? Frank. Who is Frank? Her husband. Now, you got to get this image in your mind. Here is Frank. He's a, he's a dwarf. He's a little person. Um, he's connected to who or what? I'll teach you to, I'll teach you to pronounce it the English way. A, tra- a tragedian. She, he's, attached, he's attached to the tra- tragedian. Uh, and, you know, Americans sometimes say Tra- tragedian, but usually if you look it up, it should be tragedian. Uh, she, he's attached to the tra- tragedian. So you need to see that he, the dwarf, is holding the chain that's, got, that's linked around the neck of the big tra- tragedian. Um, what you need to figure out, if you haven't figured it out real quick, is the dwarf is Frank. How would you describe the tragedian's relationship to Frank? Who or what is the tragedian? Probably the better word, uh, that, that's Frank's facade. 
That's Frank's outer person. That's the Frank that gets presented to the world. He's an actor. That's the Frank that gets presented to the world. Um, they're the same person in this story, you notice. It says in here, they're the same, that sometimes they speak in unison. Um, but most of the time, the tragedian is speaking on behalf of Frank. And when you hear the tragedian speak, you need to hear loud, theatrical language. You could almost say what that means about Frank, um, the husband, is he is a, um, he's a drama king. He's a drama king. He loves to manipulate people around him. He particularly, and you see this as you follow along in the story, he manipulates people primarily by his pity. That's how he manipulates people. Um, so that's, that's her husband that she is coming down to meet. She's going to be the spirit to come meet this ghost. Um, you know, just what you learn about the guy here, again, this makes Sarah look really, really good. You know, if I'd have been Sarah, I don't know if I'd have come to meet him. I'd have, I'd have hoped he got back on that bus and went back to the Greytown. But she goes down in grand procession to meet him because that's who she is. If you look at the bottom of page 121, you hear the first thing that, that is said by Sarah to Frank. Frank, she said, before anything else, forgive me. For all I ever did and for all I did not do right since the first day we met, I ask your pardon. You know, first five times I read this, I could have sworn that should have been coming from Frank's mouth. <laughs> but that's not where it comes from. It's coming from Sarah. Again, it tells you something about Sarah. And she's asking forgiveness for both sins of omission and sins of commission, as we say in the church. What are sins of commission in the church? Things we do wrong. What are sins of omission? When we fail to do the right. That's why we, 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 we repent and confess our sins of commission and omission. It's not just the bad things we did, but it's the good things we didn't get around to doing. Or the good things that um, we just let the opportunity slip by. So, so she's asking Frank for forgiveness. Um, and and just, just, just look on, look on, keep going. I looked properly at the door for the first time now, or perhaps when he received her kiss, he became a little more visible. Because again, what happens in heaven? We become solid. We become the people God created us to be. Uh, creation is fulfilled. Recreation in Christ is fulfilled. And so she's, she kisses him, and that, even, that influence helps him get a little more heavenly. Um, it's not going to work for long. One could just make out the sort of face he must have had when he was a, when he was a man, a little oval freak-like, freak freak-led face with a weak chin and a tiny whisk of, of, of unsuccessful mustache. He gave her a full glance, not a full look. He was watching the tragedian out of the corner of his eyes. He's controlled by his facade. He's controlled by his public image. He's controlled by his actor profile uh, that keeps manipulating people, particularly through pity. Um, so he gave her a glance. Uh, he gave her a glance, not a full look. He was watching the tragedian out of the corner of his eyes. Then he gave a jerk to the chain, and it was the tragedian, not he, who answered the lady. Yeah, the tragedian speaks for Frank. And then again, you got to hear it theatrical. There, there, said the tragedian. We'll say, think about a Shakespearean actor. We'll say no more about it. We all make mistakes. With the words, with, with the words there came over his features a ghastly contortion, which I think was meant for an indulgently playful smile. We'll say no more, he continued. It's not myself I'm thinking about. Well, you know better than that. It's not myself I'm thinking about. It's you. That is, what, that is what has been continued on my mind all these years. The thought of you, you here alone breaking your heart about me. Hmm. So he's still trying to make, make her in heaven pity him. 
because he spent this time on earth after she died. Just, he was heartbroken that she no longer had him. Um, so yeah, even, you know, he, she wants, he wants her to be thinking about his heartbrokenness. Uh, but now, said the lady to the dwarf, you can set all that aside. Never think like that again. It's all over. Well, again, part of the whole point of the book is you can't take tokens of hell, hellish ways, into heaven. You're going to see later that hell cannot veto heaven either. But uh, he wants to, this is who he is. It's who he is. And, you know, one of the things that we have to accept about ourselves at the end of the day, after all of our excuses, who we are is really our choice. We, we, we choose whether we're going to be happy or not. We choose whether we're going to be Christian-like or not. We, 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 again, we want to give our responsibility away to everybody else. But at the end of the day, we choose who we are. Um, Anyway, notice um, the next line, you miss me, he croaked in a small bleeding voice, because that was Frank's voice, you know, kind of a small bleeding voice. Yet even then, she was not taken aback. Still, the love and courtesy flowed from her. Okay, so you, you get the picture of, of this interchange be, between them. Um, she's trying to talk him into accepting the gift of heaven, accepting the change that will come from, from being fully sanctified in heaven. That means being willing to let go of those unsanctified parts of our life here. Um, you know, he even says on the top of page 124, of course it would be rather fine and magnanimous not to press the point, they said to one another, the tragedian to Frank. But can we be sure she had noticed we've done these sorts of things before. There was a time we let her have the last stamp in the house to write to her mother and said nothing, although she had known we wanted to write a letter ourselves. <sighs> yeah, don't you pity him? I mean, he's just, he, he's miserable. He likes being miserable. He's actually going to say a little later he's not going to let go of his misery to accept the joy of heaven. His misery has become a big part of, of who he is. Um, anyway, so you sort of keep getting the pictures. Um, even what it says, I, can, I can't forget it, cry the tragedian, and I won't forget it either. I, I, I could forgive them all they've done to me, but for your miseries. Well, she, wasn't, she hasn't been miserable. <laughs> oh, don't you understand, said the lady, there are no miseries here. Do you mean to say, answered the dwarf, as if this new idea had made him quite forget the tragedian for a moment, do you mean to say you've been happy? Yeah, he can't imagine her being happy without him. Didn't you want me to be? That's an important question. Remember Jesus there at the pool of Bethesda? Met the man who had been infirm for so many years. And remember the question he asked the man? Do you want to be healed? Well, you'd think that'd be a stupid question to ask somebody that's been infirm, but it's not. Sometimes we can make our brokenness, our pain, our miseries. Sometimes we can make them central to our personality. Some people don't know how to live except as a victim. And they will not let you take that away from them because they don't know how to live otherwise without their miseries, their unhappiness, uh, their bitterness, um, their state of being a victim. He's a perpetual victim. That's how he's trying to call forth her pity. Here he is in heaven still wanting pity. Um, anyway, so the, 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 the conversation continues. They, they start talking about love. Um, top of page 125, look here, said the tragedian. We've got to face this. He was using his manly bullying tone this time. Yeah, there'll be, if you really want to bully people and control people, you won't want to be in heaven. You can do that in the other place. He was using his manly bully in tone this time, the, other, the one for bringing women to their senses. <laughs> Darling, said the lady to the dwarf, there's, there's nothing to face. You, you, don't want to have, you don't want me to have been miserable for misery's sake. You only think I must have been if I loved you, 
But if you'll only wait, you'll see this isn't so. Love, said the tragedian, striking his forehead with his hand in a very theatrical way. Then a few notes deeper. Love, do you know the meaning of the word? Here's somebody in heaven. He's asking her, does she know the meaning of the word love? How should I not, said the lady. I am in love, in love, in the midst of love, lost in love, immersed in love. I'm in love. In love, do you understand? Yes, now I truly love. You mean, said the tragedian, you mean you did not love me truly in the old days? Only in a poor sort of way, she answered. I've asked you to forgive me. There was a little real love in it, but what we called love down there was mostly the craving to be loved. In the main, I, in the main, I loved you for my own sake because I needed you. Yeah, the more sanctified we become, the more we realize this. If you read C.S. Lewis's, uh, one of his later books, The Four Loves, he, he will talk about need love. And we humans, he says it's not a bad thing. This helps the world go around. This helps us do good things. Need love is what we do because we need whatever your love, our love towards you can bring us. That, that's different from gift love where I just give you what you need. But some of the loving we do, we, 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 we do because we need it. We want it. We desire it. We're in love with being in love. We're in love with having a relationship. So our love's not perfect in this world. And we probably won't know that till we get to the other world. Um, and now, said the tragedian with a hackneyed gesture of despair, now you need me no more. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't need her anymore. You know, one time, I, I'll never forget, I was speaking at Trinity Church in Winston-Salem years ago, and, and, a, and a, um, a negative response from the congregation helped me think through something. I made this statement that we should never need another human being. That's the place of God in our life. Well, this husband afterwards came to me very distraught because um, I think I said we should never need another human being to, to, to survive. And that's true. Our survival is not based on having this other human being in our life. Um, he was distraught because I think he started thinking about his relationship to his wife and you know, how he could not survive without her. Which has, Anyway, he came up to me and we had a conversation and it helped me Clarify, so, okay, maybe what I should say is you certainly should never convince yourself. Well, you shouldn't convince yourself you need another human being to survive. You, you certainly shouldn't convince yourself that you need another human being to thrive. That's what God does for us. Um, again, if, 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 you know, we all need the people in our life for a certain reason, and I do. There's, if, if, I, my wife is half my memory. If she's gone, I, she is half my memory. Um, she makes my flight reservations, just tells me when to go on the plane. And I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons we do need each other. But people, sooner or later, will learn they can survive without that other person. You have to. So go ahead and tell yourself, you know, I tell couples in premarital counseling, don't ever put your spouse in a place that, belongs only to God. You know, God's the one we need uh, to survive. God's the one we need to thrive. And everything else is extra, is secondary, is icings on the cake. Um, you know, I don't want anybody to ever need me um, because, again, love gets a little weird at that point. I want them to want me. I want them to love me, but not just need me for what they're getting out of me. Um, but anyway, yeah, this guy just loved to manipulate. Here he's still in heaven trying to manipulate, using pity to manipulate. Uh, here he still is in heaven uh, trying to control Sarah. And Sarah's a big deal in heaven, you see. Um, one of the things that you may want to pause and take notice of is this. Um, and again, the point of the book is choices, the power of choices. Are we... Are we he, well, by the way, he originally named this book. His editors had him change it. Um, he originally named this book, Who Goes Home? 
So the point he's making is, which of these places is your home? Which of these places is your home by nature? Which, well, the editor said, don't do that. So they came up with a great divorce idea. How heaven and hell are two very, very, very different places. And heaven and hell never marries. You know, heaven, you can't carry hell with you into heaven. You can't carry he- heaven with you into hell. You cannot allow hell and hellish ways to veto heaven. So, great divorce. But it's all about who goes home. What is your true home? What, what do you want at the center of your being? Uh, what's your prevailing passion? So you do, though. That, that's the point of the book. But there may be some hints here from C.S. Lewis's mind. He's trying to refrain from this. But there may be some hints here about heaven. You know, the place where we're lost in wonder, love, and praise. The place where all becomes joy. Um, the place where we... <clears throat> finally become the people we were truly created to be. And I've even contemplated this because I read it throughout Christian tradition. Maybe the rewards that the Bible speaks of in heaven. Well, before I say what I think they may be, we need to make sure that we never interpret the rewards of heaven like we would interpret the rewards of earth. Money, power, prestige, wealth. However heaven interprets rewards, it's going to be different from the way we interpret reward here on earth. But maybe, maybe our rewards in heaven, for Sarah Smith, all those children of hers there, her sons, her daughters, her animals, that she influenced, that she impacted, that are in heaven partly because of her. That may be the rewards that heaven brings. Uh, because we won't know the good that we've done on this earth completely until we get on the other side. And there you may find out the people you've influenced, the people in whose lives you made a difference. And that appears to be the rewards that are with her in her glorious procession. Um, anyway, so you do maybe learn some things that I think will fit Scripture uh, about what heaven may be like. Yeah, you know, rewards in heaven does not mean, you know, that's why I love that phrase in holy, holy, holies. We will cast our crowns before him. You know, even if you get a crown in heaven, you're just gonna, what you'll want to do with it is place it at the feet of Jesus. You know, what, what matters to us here on earth will not matter to us there. Um, we will be completely and fully sanctified at that point. So then, I just want to do a little bit of chapter 13. This conversation goes on. Um, But I want you to notice, as the conversation goes on, what happens to the dwarf? He shrinks, gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Finally, Sarah Smith's on her knees trying to talk to this dwarf, her husband. Finally... She can't hardly even see him. Finally, I mean, the tragedian is still there. And the chain is still there. You know, the, the, the Frank might be an insect on the chain's bottom now. He has shrunk to almost nothing. He's, he's losing all his humanity. He's becoming completely not what uh, God created him to be. Um, and then finally, the tragedian goes away too. So she was not successful. She was not successful. Um, Let me just get you to the um, to the paraphrase of hymn 91, uh, not hymn 91, Psalm 91 uh, on on page 133. Let's start on 132. And that said, the tragedian, that is all you have understood of me after all these years. I don't know what had had become of the dwarf ghost by now. Perhaps it was climbing up the chain like an insect. Perhaps it was somehow absorbed into the chain. This guy, you, you remember the person who quit grumbling and became a grumble? This person just becomes his facade. This person just becomes his image. 
his public image, the persona that he had tried to um, present. You know what the word hypocrites means in the Greek and why Jesus used the word hypocrites? People, people used to wonder, till they did a little more digging near Nazareth, they used to wonder how Jesus knew about hypocrites in his Jewish world. A hypocrites, hypocrite. A hypocrites in the Greek world is a play actor. That's what a hypocrite, hypocrites is. And in the Greek world, you literally would put on mask if you're happy, mask if you were sad. Those were the hypocrites actors. Now, we used to wonder, well, how does this good Jew in that little village of Nazareth ever know about hypocrites? Well, if you go with me sometime to Israel, you'll see Nazareth is here, a really, 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 really important city named Sepphoris is right here. Sepphoris was a major city in Israel in Jesus' day. He could, they could see each other from Nazareth to Sepphoris. Jesus, as an adult, never went to Sepphoris, just like Jesus, as an adult, never went to Tiberias because they were non-Jewish, pagan, Greco-Roman cities. So, But it was a major city. But what had happened when Jesus was a young boy, Sepphoris had been destroyed by the Romans in a revolt of the Jews, of the Jewish people there under Herod. It had been destroyed. So while Jesus was growing up four miles from the ruins of Sepphoris, they, they were rebuilding Sepphoris, four miles from the city of Nazareth. When you rebuild a city, what kind of occupation do you need? A carpenter. Um, <clears throat> Sepphoris is the city set on a hill, by the way, that he could see from Nazareth. So we have this image of young Jesus following his dad, Joseph, to help rebuild the major city of Sepphoris. The city of Sepphoris had Greco-Roman things like public baths. Jews didn't do that. Gymnasiums, Jews didn't do that. Theaters, Jews didn't do that. So they were hypocrites in the, in the Greco-Roman theater there in Sepphoris. So that's how, that's how Jesus, um, people used to say, the more cynical scholars said Jesus wouldn't have known what hypocrites was. That, might, that must be the invention a hundred years after the time of Jesus by the Greco-Roman church writing that back into the life of Jesus. Well, no, he knew what a hypocrites was because he watched Sepphoris be rebuilt. And now that Sepphoris has been excavated, uh, when you go to Sepphoris, you feel like you're walking around the ruins of Rome. And there, there's, there's the mosaics. There's the mosaics with um, beautiful, beautiful faces of like a woman in it. Jews wouldn't have done that. There was a mosaic discovered there by a professor from Duke that they've turned the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. It was a Greco-Roman city. Jews don't use, you know, they don't make photographs of human beings. That's a, that's a, that's a graven image, um, at least Orthodox Jews. So uh, he, he watched Sepphoris being built. So he knew all about hypocrite days. He knew all about that lifestyle. Um, he saw sexual morality in Sepphoris that he did not see in Nazareth because um, there was a Greco-Roman city four miles away, city set on a hill, and he used that for a lot of his teaching. So Jesus knew what a hypocrite day was, a hypocrite, a play actor. So Frank just becomes his facade, becomes his exterior play acting. You know, um, I can't remember which famous Christian it was who said one time, what a person is in private is what a person is. You know, I don't want anybody to see a side of me that my family doesn't see. And um, you need to kind of, that's your authentic self. Now again, but to be authentic means you need to be authentic in the way God wants you to be authentic and make sure that the outward you, the public you, and the private you meshes. Um, yeah, Frank just spent his life here being, you know, with this facade. Um, he's a wimpish little man, really, with a terrible inferiority complex, and he presents, though, as this dramatic Shakespearean actor. You ever notice some of the most vocal, verbal, apparently strong-egoed people in the world really have very low self-esteem? They have to keep telling you how wonderful they are because they don't sense that. 
They have to convince you that they're wonderful and famous and great and the world can't do without them because they don't believe that about themselves. That's why this little Frank had that facade of that Shakespearean actor there. Anyway, so he's absorbed into the chain. Keep going, no, Frank, not here, said the lady. Listen to reason. Did you think joy was created to live always under that threat? Any defenseless... In, always defenseless against those who would rather be miserable than have their self-will crossed. Sanctification means having your self-will crossed. Um, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and fall after Christ. Yeah, we, 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 we don't score well on that deny ourselves thing. Always defenseless against those who would rather be miserable than have their self-will crossed. For it, is, it was real misery. I know that now. You made yourself really wretched. Don't you know people like that? Uh, that you can still do. You can do it for eternity is what she's saying. That you can still do. But you can no longer communicate your wretchedness. Can't share it in heaven. Everything becomes more and more itself. Here is joy that cannot be shaken. Our light can swallow up your darkness, but your darkness cannot now infect our light. You can't bring your hellish ways into heaven. The ways of hell cannot veto the ways of heaven. No, 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 come to us. We will not go to you. She's begging, Frank, to come and let heaven do its work. Can you really have thought that love and joy would always be at the mercy of frowns and sighs? Did you not know that they were stronger than their opposites? Love, how dare you use that sacred word, said the tragedian. At the same moment, he gathered up the chain, which had now for some time been swinging uselessly at his side. Frank's gone and somehow disposed of it. I'm not quite sure, but I think he swallowed it. He's swallowed by his facade. He's followed, swallowed by his outer image. Then, for the first time, it became clear that the lady saw and addressed him only. Where is Frank? She said to the tragedian. And who are you, sir? I never knew you. Perhaps you had better leave me or stay if you prefer. If, if, if it would help you and if it were possible, I would go down with you into hell. But you cannot bring hell into me. You do not love me, said the tragedian in a thin, bat-like voice, and he was now very difficult to see. He's vanishing. I cannot love a lie, said the lady. I cannot love the thing which is not I am in love. She's immersed in God now. I am in love, and out of it I will not go. There was no answer. There was no answer. The tragedian had vanished. The lady was alone in that woodland place, and a brown bird went hopping past her, bending with its light feet the grass I could not bend. That bird is more solid than these ghosts. Presently, the lady got up and began to walk away. The other bright spirits came forward to receive her, singing as they came. And we turn the page, you see the italicized words. Uh, that's Lewis's paraphrase of Psalm 91. So we'll stop there. Uh, Part of your homework is make sure you know Psalm 91. That's that great psalm about protection. She has been protected from Frank and the tragedian. But make sure you read Psalm 91, then you'll be fascinated by the, um, the paraphrase, the Christian paraphrase uh, that Lewis makes of Psalm 91. And then next week we finish up the book. Questions, comments, reflections on Sarah. Yeah. Why does C.S. Lewis believe there will be animals in heaven? What's going to be cool? You want me to give my short answer? Because there will be. One of the things that we've finally begun to recapture in the 20th century and now the 21st century, thanks to some great New Testament scholars, particularly like N.T. Wright, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the kingdom comes, which is what we're waiting on, when the kingdom comes, earth will be regenerated, earth will be renewed, earth will be recreated. We'll get back, read, read Revelation 21, 22. We will get back to when heaven and earth come down, come down and engulf earth. 
with the new heaven and the new earth come down and engulf this old earth, our old earth will be redeemed. You see it here. When God finishes His work of recreation in Jesus Christ, it's going to be complete. That's why the trees, the shrubs, we're on our way back to a rejuvenated, renewed, restored paradise. Um, a collection of um, N.T. Wright's writings that just came out. Uh, and he's just reminding the church what the Bible says. is entitled, as, in, as, also in, as, also in, as also on earth. Again, think about the definition. Because again, thou will be done on earth one day in the future as it's right now being done in heaven. You have to set that over against what we went through for about 200 years. History is important. Don't erase it. What we went through for about 200 years, the Christian community just thought you live, you die, you go to heaven, end of story. And we got some great gospel songs that make it sound like you live, you die, you go to heaven. We have always, 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 always referred to heaven as the intermediate state. We have never referred to heaven as a final state in the Christian faith. That's where we go to reside in great joy and bliss, all this stuff. We go to reside there, but one day, heaven's going to come to earth. And that's the completion of the kingdom. So again, what we had done for a couple hundred years when we just thought we live, we die, our souls go to heaven, and we live in this disembodied heavenly state for eternity... You're being a great follower of Plato at that point. So I'm glad in the last hundred years we've tried to recall the church back to a material redemption. That earth will be redeemed. So that means you'll be redeemed, your spirit will be redeemed, your soul will be redeemed, the trees will be redeemed. Read Revelation 21 and 22. It looks, there's trees, there's trees, there's a river. All of that will be redeemed. And read, read the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible where the Messianic age is painted in beautiful terms. One that comes to mind, Isaiah chapter 11. The Messianic age, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The children will play over the holes of the adders, the snakes. There will be no hurt or harm on all my, on all my holy mountain. All of creation will be harmonized. Um, uh, my dog will not chase other dogs. He will love other dogs <laughs> at that point. All creation will be harmonized. We are getting back. Yeah, we went through a couple hundred year period um, we th where we thought just dying and going to heaven was the goal of the Christian life. That's just part of the glorious journey to the goal of the Christian life. You know, when you stand, at least in our congregation, and you say you believe in the resurrection of the body, that's your material body in this material world. So you're not just speaking metaphorically that you believe that your spirit's going to last forever. Your spirit does last forever. Um, read all about the second coming of Christ. He's going to come again. He, those, who, those who have died will come with him. You remember First Thessalonians chapter 4? Those who died will come with him. The dead in Christ will be raised then. Yeah, body and soul will be reunited in the end. Heaven is the intermediate state where our souls reside in great joy and bliss until the work is finished. Until the work is finished and the kingdom comes. Could we actually return to the Garden of Eden? There will just be. Heaven and earth will just swallow up creation. And it will be a material created. It, God will get what He wants. God will get what He wanted in Genesis 1 and 2. And we shouldn't be surprised God's going to get what he wants eventually. God's going to get what he wants in Genesis 1 and 2. And, um, yeah, that's why put that over and against sitting around eternally in an ethereal world on a cloud strumming a harp. Oh, that's, my, that's, that's why C.S. Lewis always said he was an Orthodox Christian. Don't settle for less. If that's your view of heaven, you are settling for less. You know, Paul says we go from glory to glory. We don't just go to glory, period. We go from glory to glory to glory. So we can't, I has not seen, nor 
ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. So um, that's why C.S. Lewis said, please don't think I'm giving you a, a picture of heaven because I has not seen and ear has not heard the fullness of what God has prepared for those who love him. So yeah, don't diminish the work of Christ to just make it be something for your soul. You can let your dog in on this. You can let the trees and the universe... You know, the redemptive work of Christ is um, glory be to the Father and to the Son. You Methodists know this, or, or all historic Christians know this, Lutherans and Catholics, Episcopal, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen and Amen. Yeah. Don't get rid of this world. God's going to get what he wants eventually. Um, yeah. We, we went for about a 200-year period where we just didn't think about the next life, didn't want to think about the next life. Either heaven is intermediate state or anything beyond that. Um, yeah, it's going to be an amazing redemption. When the work of the cross is finally finished. Yeah, I'll, That's why, by the way, she could touch the animals and help them be who God wanted them to be. God is, in, God, is, is, God is at work recreating all things. Not just my spirit or my soul. Yeah, when you become just spiritual or soulish, you are platonic, you are Gnostic, you are Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> but you're not New Testament Christian. New Testament... At the first part of the, is the Old Testament. The Old Testament never can envision a messianic kingdom separate from bodies and this created order. Now, in the New Testament, you get a little bit more of the spirituality added to it. But, yeah, that's why there's no heaven in the Old Testament. You have a messianic age in the Old Testament. You have the messianic age in the Old Testament. Um, that's why if you were to go into my study, my study in my home, which is really my study, I've got this, what my wife refers to as an obnoxious picture because it's about the size of that whiteboard right there. Um, it is an amazing painting that I got from a Jewish, author, a Jewish painter uh, in the Jewish section of Jerusalem, old city of Jerusalem. It is a picture of sort of the rejuvenated Jerusalem with the final kingdom sitting there on the Temple Mount. Yeah, I mean, we can't begin to imagine what we're headed to. It's not just, I mean, you, you, if you may want to rest in peace for a little while, but you don't want to rest in peace for eternity. And your spiritual ancestors knew that. The intermediate period is great and wonderful, and, you know, don't diminish that, and, but there's something greater beyond that. There's something greater beyond that. That's being core Orthodox Christianity. And that's why in the, in the modern world, we can stand and say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. And what you think you're saying is you believe in an in eternal spiritual existence. Well, it, you, the Jewish world can't separate. It's the Greek world that separates body and spirit. The Jewish world cannot separate body and spirit. Um, yeah, so um, that's one of the reasons we kind of do love creation. Because it comes from God. It's not what it's meant to be yet, but it comes from God. It will one day be what it's meant to be. So, yeah, full preach the whole counsel of God, as I said in church yesterday. Not just your five favorite passages. Yeah, and that's why some of those best images of the Messianic kingdom are in places like Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Valley of Dry Bones. That's where you get all those pictures of the Messianic kingdom. Make sure you add the New Testament to the Old Testament. Don't throw the Old Testament away and do what I got in front of me here in New Testament around. Uh, yeah, that's a little disrespectful for the Old Testament. But we just do that for convenience. Don't throw the Old Testament away. Make sure you add the New Testament to the Old Testament. That's why we made the decision in about the third century that we were keeping the Old Testament. It's, our, it's as sacred as the New Testament. But for some reason, modern Christians, we became platonic. We became Greek. We, you know, anyway. So 
Thank you for that. Yeah, God loves the material world. As we say theologically, matter matters. That's why we're there stained glass windows, water, oil, bread, wine. Yeah, don't be so super spiritual that matter doesn't matter. In the historic faith, matter matters. And that's what God is. When He finishes His work of recreation, it won't be a part-time job. It won't be just a little thing of recreation. Any other reflection on this? I love Sarah Smith. And notice this is the climax, really, of the book. You're going to go from this to we're going to finish up with where they're going to talk a little bit about Sarah Smith. And then you're going to go this chapter about this amazing chess game. Back to choices. You're going to end with an amazing chess game. But any other reflections before I end with something else? After my husband died, I decided I It's painful, isn't it? It is painful. Very painful. It is very, painful. very honest. I always, if you're not familiar with the grief observed, um, that's what C.S. Lewis wrote after Joy Davidman died with her cancer. He was so, I mean, he waited his whole life to marry, and he married, and then she dies with cancer. So you've seen the movie Shadowlands. It left him in such a state. He was a human being just like us. It left him in such a state. When he wrote a grief observed about the pain of losing joy, he, he didn't even sign his name to it. He, he wrote it under a pseudonym. And people started giving him copies of the book to read <laughs> as he was recovering from the death of joy. So finally he just said, okay, it's my book. I wrote it. But if you read A Grief Observed, it's so painful and raw. Yeah, you almost, every time I've given somebody, because it's good to validate your emotions. You're not losing your mind when you're going through those emotions. C.S. Lewis and everybody, it's, that's, that's part of the journey. You're not losing your mind. You're not the first person to feel this way. But I always feel like I need to give that book to somebody and say, he didn't lose his faith. We've got other books. We've got other books he wrote after this. But that was just sort of his personal journal going through the death of joy. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, he was able to write this long before he was in the midst of grief. You need to carry something like this with you into grief. In the midst of grief is not the time to create a theology. It's just you've got other things on your mind and heart. Um, yeah, that's a good, good comparison. Uh, you, know, re, you know, grief observe will validate your emotions, but read the problem of pain. Read letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer. Read the great divorce. Um, read the sections in mere Christianity about heaven. Yeah, those would be much more comforting. Um.